Hi everyone, you are listening to LD Spotlight, a podcast about learning and development brought to you by Nifty Learning. I'm your host, Liz Stefan, and together we're here to learn about LD. Hi everyone. Hi Andrei. Andrei Postolaki is founder at Seriously. He's a leadership and soft skills consultant, the author of Fun and Fearless Leadership, a book I highly recommend. Uh, he's also an amateur camper, YouTuber, and more recently a pilot. Welcome, Andrei. Thanks for having me back. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that you suggested, discipline, specifically self-discipline in leadership. I'm curious why you wanted to suggest this topic. Why do you feel it's so important? I think it's one of those things that gets lost in the conversation when people talk about their desire to have creative teams, autonomous teams, teams that have a lot of initiative, individuals that feel empowered to do things. Apparently, when you talk about these things and discipline in the same sentence, it seems like a contradiction. I don't think it's a contradiction. I think you actually need both in a certain way. So I think it's an important topic and not discussed a lot. When I think of discipline, I think of something quite strict, maybe the army or a very rule-based context. Can you maybe define discipline in the context of leadership, maybe three or four components of it so that we explain this to our listeners? What I'm thinking when I say discipline are the following things. I'm not thinking about rules or procedures that have to be followed because, you know, they're written somewhere. I'm not thinking about managers that do micromanagement and control their teams in detail and enforce all those rules in detail. I'm actually thinking about the opposite situation. If you think about it, when you have a team or a company that is very rule-driven, rule-based, very process-driven with managers that do a lot of micromanagement, you don't don't need discipline. Everybody does what you want them to do just because you're there breathing behind their heads and holding their hand and telling them what to do. In those kind of situations, you don't have disciplined people. You don't have disciplined teams. You just have people that you're basically forcing to do whatever you want them to do. But if you want autonomous teams, if you go to a team and you say, you guys can decide things, you can try things, you can change, go ahead and do it. That's not an easy thing to do. I mean, you can get lost, focus on all the wrong things. You can waste your time. You can spend a lot of time trying a million different things that are not so important, you can end up not getting much done. And I think exactly in this situation, when you have autonomy, you need discipline. And by discipline, I don't mean something that someone imposes on someone else. I mean, primarily self-discipline and team-based. You need discipline to give you focus. So for example, you need to decide what are the things that are not important for us that we will not spend time on such that we focus on what matters. And you need the discipline to avoid those distractions, or you need the discipline to identify your bad habits and eliminate those bad habits and create good work habits. Or in a situation where you're having a conversation with someone to not get yourself distracted and start talking about all kinds of things that are not relevant and focus on the things that matter and get to a decision. All these things happen if people know themselves, they understand how they react in different situations and control in a way their own reaction towards their objectives. This is done with discipline. I don't mean the team leader enforcing things or micromanaging you. I mean, primarily your own self-discipline and the collective discipline of a team that holds each other accountable. This is a very, I want to say democratic, but probably this is not the best word. So this is a very voluntary act, right? It's self-driven and it's because you know that the benefit of having discipline 
by yourself or for yourself, but also within the team drives to better work results. Let's say not necessarily that this is the goal, but this is the outcome. How do you get organized? How do you get your team organized? How do you teach this discipline without it feeling authoritative, without it feeling imposed? How do you organically engender discipline within a team? I think the job of the leader is first to very, very clearly tell the team what is important. What are the things that we focus on? What are the key objectives for us? What are the key results? What are the key behaviors that we want to have or don't want to have? And by tell the team, I don't necessarily mean dictate to the team. It can be a conversation. It can be even a common decision at some point. The leader's job, first and foremost, is to make sure that one way or another, every member of the team clearly 100% understands what is it we're trying to do here? What is our objective as a team? Without this kind of understanding, you cannot expect autonomy, any kind of useful autonomy or productive autonomy. Because if you expect people to just go and experiment things, they need to have a direction. They need to know what the ultimate goal is. In order for them to have some kind of a direction, they need to know what the direction is. So that is the first job of the leader. Once you make sure that the team understands what trying to do here, and that may need repeating and reinforcing, then you're telling them, okay, I don't want to micromanage you. Let's organize ourselves in a way where we treat each other like adults. You don't need to be handheld. You can make your own decisions. I trust you and we all trust each other that you will have the self-discipline to do these things and make these decisions while keeping in mind our objectives. Then they start doing it. And obviously they will make mistakes. The most important thing here is the personal example of the leader, because people will see how that person behaves. If the leader is the kind of person that will fix something that needs fixing or will take the extra time to talk to a client without anyone asking them to do that, it's important what you do when you could get away with not doing it. They will see that example and they will understand, okay, so this is what we mean by this behavior or that objective. And they will start copying that attitude. Then the other very important thing, which is actually the end goal in the building of a team, is to have a team that is self-accountable. What do I mean by that? If you have multiple people in that team and one of those team members behaves in the wrong way or does the wrong thing, they will get called out by their team members. So the team itself will not accept bad team members, basically. And the team is self-regulating. You don't need the manager to come and tell, okay, you're not performing well. You don't have the right attitude. You're not displaying the right value. You're not being a good team player. You don't even need the manager to come and do that. The team will do it itself. They will try to first educate the team members that don't do it, and then they will reject the team members that don't behave according to the rules of that team. Let me see if I can summarize this. The first thing you mentioned is clarifying the goal of the team. I know you're not a fan of consensus here, but I assume that the team needs to reach consensus about what the goal is, so everybody needs to have buy-in, correct? You don't need consensus. You just need to agree that this is what you will do. It frequently is a kind of commit and disagree. Okay. If we are a team and we say, this is what we're trying to do, I have two options. Either I get up and leave and I say, this is not for me, or I stay in that team. And that means that I will do whatever we agreed, regardless if initially I was of the same opinion or not. Can I call it everybody's buy-in? I think we can call it any way we want. I just want to emphasize the fact that many times consensus, not only it's not practical, it's not even beneficial. It doesn't 
help with anything. Because a lot of the things a team does, we don't all have to agree with because it's not us who are doing it. Let's say I have a team of 10 people and different members of that team have different initiatives or different things they want to do. But those initiatives don't affect the team equally. It's like little startups inside the team. Each of those initiatives is going to be primarily done by one or two or three members of the team. The other seven's consensus is not relevant. It's good that we told them about it. Maybe they have advice for us. Maybe they see a risk we didn't see, but primarily it's not their business in a way. Consensus or buy-in is actually relevant only when we talk about very few things, like the major objectives that impact all of us, the key behaviors that they want to display. Then we have to have a much more detailed conversation and everybody needs to be on the same page. But most of what happens on a day-to-day basis doesn't actually need to involve the whole team. And they don't have to agree with it. They don't have to disagree with it. They don't even have to know about it sometimes. I feel we're going a bit into the philosophy of agreeing or not and task distribution and so on. What I was trying to get at is in order to establish a process of self-discipline, everybody needs to agree that this is our team's goal, right? Or not? They have to want to be there. They have to accept that. Yeah, true. Okay. Then if this is the first step. The next step is the personal example of the leader. And the third thing is the team being self-accountable. Let me give an example. So let's say we have a team, the leader and the team sit down and they have a conversation. We want to put client first. Client is the most important thing to us. We want to have amazing client service and we want to understand our client and see things from their point of view and always try to fix their problem and be the best client service team in the world. That's the initial conversation. It's still a very vague idea. How does that manifest itself in real life? And then something happens. For example, at some point we have to make a decision. Maybe we made a mistake in delivering something to the client and the client is unhappy and they're asking us to rework something, that rework is obviously going to cost us money. And we could avoid it maybe by going back to the contract and finding something in the fine print. And although we kind of made a mistake at the same time. So this is where the leader needs to lead by example, because now they need to make a decision. And if they make the decision that will accept the cost and do the rework in order to make the client happy, then they've just shown what it actually means to put the client first. So that very general conversation now became specific. If on the other hand, they decide we don't really have to do this, let's find a way not to do this because we don't have to, then everything is fake at that point. This is the kind of personal example. And what do I mean by self-accountable team is that at some point when this kind of a situation happens, without even the leader being present, the other members of the team should make decisions in this way. And if one of them doesn't make a decision based on this kind of mindset, the others should step in and say, no, that's not right. This is not how we do it. And they should reject that kind of deviation from this behavior, even if the leader is not present. I get it. That to me sounds like there has to be a component of trust among the team, right? Trust that everybody will, in fact, work towards the goal. Trust that when someone strays off course and is noticed that pointing this out isn't punishment or betrayal, but rather reminding the person that they agreed to reach the same goal together. Am I going in the right direction? Yep. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. You definitely need trust. There's no way to do any of this without trust because when you don't have micromanagement, micromanagement serves a purpose. It's a bad thing, but it serves a purpose. Aligning the energies and the productivity of all the team members and all the teams in the direction in which you want to go. Once you don't have micromanagement anymore, what replaces it from the point of view of making sure we all sort of pull in the same direction? What replaces it is trust, understanding what our objectives are, communication, discipline, and self-discipline. 
these kind of things, replace it in a better way. So definitely you need trust. Without trust, you can't do anything. So micromanagement is that thing that happens when people don't trust each other, essentially, right? I'm not even saying they're not actively trusting each other, but it's that kind of a mindset that generally people cannot be trusted. So we have to write everything down in detail and we have all kinds of processes and rules just to make sure that people don't go in other directions. We want to know exactly what they're doing. Okay, that's interesting. I had a question here for this whole process of setting up discipline within the team, but maybe the right word is learning it and practicing it. So giving time for the behavior to be established. My question here is, is it exclusively the leader's job to do this? Or can you teach or foster leadership discipline within a team with the help of a learning program? Ultimate accountability, let's call it like that, rests with leadership. The leadership needs to understand, one, that this is an important thing that needs to happen. And they need to know they are accountable for making it happen. Not personally, not only themselves, but, you know, the buck stops with them. So they have to prioritize it and they have to ensure that it happens. The tools they have at their disposal are many. Some of it will be personal example, personal communication. Some of it will be through growing other leaders near them that can further go and grow other leaders and so on, including obviously things like learning programs and training. And I think there's many valuable tools they can use, but the ultimate responsibility of thinking about what we want and making sure it happens somehow is with leadership. Is it fair to say, for example, that no amount of formal learning programs will lead to leadership and discipline within the team unless the leaders actually invest energy in that? Yes, I totally agree with that because when you go to a formal training program, training, workshops, coaching, anything, for example, with people from outside the company, like an external trainer, or even with people from inside the company, when you go to that, no matter how good the things you see and learn there are, no matter how much you agree with them, if you feel like you cannot apply them in your day-to-day job, in your team, you will not apply them. This is the primary reason why many times training programs don't have a lot of results. It's not because they're bad in themselves or because the trainers are bad or because they're not saying intelligent things. It's because people can't apply those things in their day-to-day job. So if you want to change leadership behaviors and if you want to teach people how to lead or behave in a different way in a team, the most important thing you need to do is work with the actual leaders from inside the company for them to understand and to learn those things and to actually start behaving in that way as an example for that team. Only then if you do some training, then that training is going to be much better because it's going to be possible to actually do it in your team because you know that your leader is actually trying to do the same thing. So it all makes sense now. I feel like this type of discipline in the, let's say, art of leadership is something that could become tiring at some point, or it could become difficult to continuously support and act on. Can you get leadership fatigue or discipline fatigue? Oh, yes. I've actually seen it in quite a few people. First, I think you're absolutely right. Leadership is something that you do continuously. Leadership is something that you do every day. When you're a leader, formal or informal, everything that you do, every decision that you make, you're considering from two points of view. One point of view is the practical point of view, like getting the task done. And the other point of view is, is this the right thing? Is this according to our values? Am I setting the right example? It can be tiring. And I know people, I know a lot of people that have been leaders for a while, I mean, in a formal way. They were team 
leaders, managers, they had responsibility for people. And after some time, they said, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm giving this up and I want to go back to a kind of more technical role of some sort where I'm not responsible in this way for people because it's just too difficult or too tiring. I've seen that. And it's not necessarily a problem in itself. The people that have the maturity to know and say that and want to make that change, actually, they should be applauded. I think what we need to avoid is people that don't want to be leaders anymore, don't want to be managers anymore, don't want to take care of people anymore, but at the same time, keep their job because it gives them a feeling of being important or whatever. I think that's the situation we want to avoid. We could be talking about two types of profiles or personalities. One of them is someone who would naturally feel comfortable in a leadership role. And for them, I guess it's just a matter of getting organized, let's say. The other type is people who aren't naturally comfortable in a leadership role and they need to maybe take a good look at themselves and see if this is the right fit for them. And if they decide it is, then they need to figure out a way to build resilience, right? Because it can be quite consuming. Yes, it can be. But also sometimes you just don't want to do it anymore, even though you may be very good at it. I've seen people that are very good leaders. They were suited for the job. They cared about people. They knew how to talk to people. They knew how to deal with difficult situations and all those things we associate when we think about leaders. But they just didn't want to do it. Maybe something changed in their life, 10 or 20 years of doing that, and they wanted more personal time for whatever. They wanted a more relaxing role at work, or they just wanted to try something different. Sometimes that happens as well. But most of the times, I think it's like you say, it's people that were promoted to a leadership position. You may be familiar with Peter's principle, which says that everyone gets promoted until they reach their position of incompetence. What that means is if you're a good junior developer, people are going to see you and they're going to promote you to a medium developer. You're a good medium developer, they promote you to a senior developer. You're a good senior developer, let's promote this person to being a team leader. And let's say you're not such a good team leader, you're struggling. But unless you're really struggling, they're not going to send you back. You're just going to stay there. So basically what we did is that we lost a good developer and we gained a mediocre team leader. It's very easy to have this happening a lot and for most people to get stuck in the job where they're actually not so good. A lot of managers who also have leadership responsibilities ended up being managers like this. They were promoted. They said yes because it seemed interesting and because who would turn out a promotion and then they realized they're not so good at it but they're stuck. They're not moving further and they don't want to give it up either. Yeah, I could say I've seen this in practice as well. I might have even been in that position myself at one point or another. Okay, very interesting. Is it also the fault, let's say, of the way the organization understands career advancement? Maybe up is not always the best direction to go, but everybody's default of career advancement is just an upward trajectory. That's part of the problem and not only the idea of going up, but also the idea that we still see in many organizations that you can go up in a technical role. Most of us start in a technical role. And by technical, I don't mean software developer. I mean anything, like a specialist in something, right? You could be a specialist in marketing. You could be a software developer. You could be a HR person, but you're a specialist in that. And you have some room to grow as a more senior specialist. But soon enough, in many companies, in order to grow further, you have to take over some kind of management responsibilities and some kind of people responsibilities. This is just how the hierarchy is designed in that company. There's no option. There's no other choice. That means that people, after a few years of being a specialist, they're pretty much forced to accept a management role because otherwise they will never get promoted again. You know, their salary will never increase again and they will suffer in all kinds of ways. I think one thing companies need to do is create career paths. And I, I don't necessarily like this word, but you, you know what I'm trying to say, that allow people to grow to very senior roles, very highly rewarded roles without having to become managers just by being 
being very good specialists. Specialists with a lot of impact, that have a lot of influence, but not managers, just specialists. The other one is, yes, also this uh, idea that you have to constantly promote or you're not good. There's expectations that you're going to spend uh, two or three years in a given level. And if you don't get promoted in two or three years, something is wrong with you. I also think that's wrong. I think some people can just spend 20 years on a role or on a level. And that's absolutely fine. If they're doing a good job there, we don't have a problem with that. They don't need to keep changing or promoting all the time just because other people want to do that. And if other people want to promote as fast as they can, that's also fine. But you need to have the wisdom and a flexible enough structure to allow for all kinds of individuals to exist and find the place where they're best suited in your company. That's what I think, at least. It sounds to me like a very good step for an organization to move towards a healthy leadership model is to genuinely recognize people's abilities in the most accurate possible way so that they don't impose a structure of promotion that doesn't make sense for people's abilities, right? Yes, they don't do it anymore. But I think at some point Accenture, 10, 20 years back, they had a management policy which was called up or out. So basically you had to get promoted every year or you'd be fired. I don't know if it applied to everyone, but they had this in some parts of the company at least. The idea was that if you're not good enough that we want to promote you, that means we're not good enough for us to keep you. And I understand the idea. It makes a certain kind of sense theoretically in some way, but the result was not good at all. The result was really bad in the sense that every time people had to do something like helping each other or starting up an initiative or taking a risk, like we were talking in the previous episodes, they would all avoid any kind of risk or the possibility of making any kind of mistake because they wouldn't want to jeopardize their promotion. And also, you will never get good people on any given job because if they would get promoted, by the time they get a little bit good on that job, they get promoted to the next thing. So you have only sort of beginners at every level. It was a really bad policy and they stopped doing it. That's an extreme example, but I think most companies have something like this somewhere and I think it's not necessarily helping them. That was very interesting for me. I, I had no idea about this model. I also feel that companies have a certain setup and most companies view promotion as the natural course for any employee, right? But I also feel that people aspire to grow professionally, but don't know that growth is also a lateral thing or a specializing thing. They just assume and want to keep growing upwards. I feel like sometimes people also chase the promotion without understanding what it means for them, for the others in the company. It's just a means to an end, let's say. I want to make more money, but I don't necessarily care if that actually means I'm going to be doing a good job or I'm going to be helping the company or even be happy at work. Yeah, I agree with that. I think generally speaking, people want to be successful, whatever that means. But when you put someone in a certain situation, most people will look around and they'll see what is defined as success here. What is the thing that everybody wants to do and what is the thing that is appreciated? They will try to do the same thing. And if in that company, the only thing that is appreciated and recognized and rewarded is getting promoted, then that's what most people will try to do. And I don't think it's the fault of the people. I think it's just that's the system. That's what the system asks from them and they just behave according to the system. And if we want to change that, it's the job of the leadership of the company to also change the system, to actually give people options. Yeah, I was actually going to circle back on that point as well. If you want healthy leadership, then there are so many components to this. So People should be aware of their own skills, but the company should be aware of people's skills. Career growth isn't necessarily upwards. It's also specializing in something or being very good at what you do or moving laterally and learning new skills. If you're not 100% prepared for a leadership role, then you could or should expect to have the need for stronger self-discipline and also to build resilience. So far, so good? 
The one with 100% prepared, it's an interesting conversation. If you should accept a role, including a leadership role, only if you're 100% confident you can do it, or maybe when you're 70% confident. And clearly you don't have an exact number, but as a rough order of confidence, my personal opinion is that you shouldn't go for 100%. If you're 100% sure you can do something, you're probably being too careful. And I think you should start a new challenge when you're not quite there, not completely unprepared, like you don't know anything about it, but you don't have to be fully prepared. Okay, that makes sense. And to try and summarize the actionable advice related to leadership and self-discipline or team discipline, let's say, basically what I'm hearing is the team should establish the common goal. The leader should lead by example and showcase leadership in action, show discipline, whatever chance they get. And the team should be self-accountable, meaning if someone, including the leader, goes off course, everybody should hold each other accountable and remind everybody that this is not working towards the common goal. Is that a, a good summary? Yes, I think it is. Thank you, Andre, for today's episode. It was a pleasure speaking to you and looking forward to the next one. Likewise. Thank you so much for being with us today. This has been another episode of LND Spotlight. If you'd like to get in touch and join the conversation, write to me at liz at niftylearning.io or connect with me on LinkedIn at Liz Stefan. Have a productive week, everyone.